Hardcore Surf History. It's been said that what sets surfing apart from other sports is the central role travel plays in our culture. Simply put, while we'd happily go halfway around the earth in hopes of finding good waves, you wouldn't go there looking for the perfect basketball court. Throughout surfing's history, stories have been told, films have been made, businesses have developed, even whole lives have been set up around the dream of the search. Travel, no matter how grand or pedestrian, has given surfing a sense of adventure, sophistication, and magic. But what does surf travel actually look like? What did it mean to be a surf traveler a century ago? And what does it mean now? And what will it mean in the future? How has travel shaped us? And perhaps more poignantly, how has it impacted everyone else? In London, I'm Jamie Brewer. And I'm Tyler Brewer in Brooklyn. This is Hardcore Surf History where we take a deep dive into surfing's past, present, and future. On this episode, we explore the reasons for surf travel and the many adventures and tales that have been told through the years. We discuss the pioneers and the moral questions that surf travel brings with it. And when would have been the golden era of surf exploration? Plus... We've gone to the ends of the earth to find a question that would stump my bro. Well, welcome back to Hardcore Surf History, fans. It has been a quite a long time, I think, since we've done it. You know, I had the Greg McGilvery uh, episode that I was able to kind of parse into there, but uh, otherwise, yeah, yeah. When when was the last time that we we did this? Was, was oh, it in the last probably, couple of months? <laughs> probably like the beginning of summer. <laughs> I feel oh my like. god! <laughs> no, geez. it's been a while. Got to get better at it. <laughs> it's just life. <laughs> a lot of things well, happening the, in the interim. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, actually, I guess for you, it's kind of um, weird that it's happening on this episode, you know, is that like, actually, you've, you've made a big move, so you don't have to do much surf travel anymore. Yeah, yeah. Listeners, I just moved to the beach. And so uh, um, now I can see the ocean from my place. And uh, yeah, surf travel, actually. Now, now it was funny, like uh, my wife, you know, Donna said, uh well, now that we live on the beach, we don't have to travel for surf anymore. So we can go places that ha- doesn't have surf. <laughs> well, that's an interesting question then. Like, yeah, that kind of brings up the, the, the existential question, you know, like, why do we travel for surf? Like, in my situation, you know, where I live, like, okay, two hours from actually getting to surf, but it's not 
it's very difficult to surf two hours away. I have to travel about six hours to get good waves. Uh, so this is pretty obvious why I travel to surf, and so I can actually do it. But if you have good waves on your doorstep, you know, um, why? why would you do it? I mean, I think uh, waves is definitely a reason for it. And, you know, and I, I think uh, at least for, for me in New York, like we don't get waves all the time and it's cold in the winter. So there are reasons there to try to escape uh, the cold and sometimes flat surf. And in the summer, it could be pretty small and crowded. So uh, try to escape that as well. So that would be one reason is to escape whatever uh, location you're in just to get some consistent waves. But that, that's kind of the same kind of like practical, like you have to do it, you know, like necessity is the mother of invention. Yeah. But, that, but like, what about, what, so like if you, if you live, uh, you know, where, where the surf is really good all the time, you yeah. know, just, uh, but they, people still travel. Why, why, why would they travel? Um, you want a variety. Maybe. maybe you want a different wave, you know? Um, like I think it's like, uh, I guess it's like almost like traveling for food, right? To sample a different uh, flavor, uh, to sample a different wave is, is kind of like traveling for like a different meal, right? Like you go to France to have like a, a specific French meal. You go to Italy for pasta. You go to all these places to sample a certain type of, um, you know, delicacy. And the same with waves, right? Like you go to to Hawaii to sample the power and, and big waves. You go maybe to Peru for the long point breaks. You go, you know, to Morocco for the long right-handers because maybe you, I only surf on my forehand, you know? So it's like, you know, lots of different reasons there. I think is, is someone who is curious and wants to try different waves. I mean, that's probably... Uh, one of the main reasons I think people do go to travel. So from that from that point of view, like right, yeah. just like a slide aside from that, you know, like yeah. if you like right now, what wave can can you not get at home consistently that you would like travel to another part of the world for? A nice, consistent, long, peeling left hander. <laughs> mm. So. I mean, something that doesn't, that I don't have to like race for like, you know, race to the end section and get like a little closeout maneuver, you know, like here in New York, like a lot of them are really fast and, and, you know, you don't get a lot of shoulder and don't, don't really, it's difficult to kind of, kind of fit in a lot of maneuvers sometimes, you know? Uh, so somewhere I can take my time a little bit more and pace myself on a wave would be nice. Yeah. <laughs> it's interesting time. how, yeah, I wonder, like, the point break, like, that definitely, you know, like, in the 60s, like, you know, when In the Summer was, you know, was out, you know, they, he said, you know, Bruce Brown said, you know, everyone would love to find a place that's as good as Malibu or Rincon, you know, right. the two point breaks, you know, they were kind of like the the trophy waves to search after. Um, and, yeah, point breaks have definitely, I think, for the, everyday surfer have always been kind of an ideal but I, I know i think surfer magazine or surfing magazine once did some travel issue and they had a part of an article or a whole article where mm -hmm. they said throughout time there's been different ideals of like the ultimate wave to oh, travel yeah. for yeah 
Yeah, I'm curious. Could you think like what? I have a list. If, if you, yeah, if you think of from like the '60s, <laughs> '70s, not necessarily countries, you know, and like, yeah. but like, if you were thinking like, uh, well, here, the ultimate wave. Here's my like the 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 spots of the world that have been like dream surf destinations in history, mm. and it would go like Cape St. Francis, Santosha, which is Mauritius, Uluwatu, J Bay, Lagundry Bay, Gland, Tavarua. Mentalize, and then f- ending on Surf Ranch. <laughs> <laughs> That's kind of like the the arc right there. <laughs> I mean, I'm sure I've left a lot of places out, but that's like kind of the what were like the ideal kind of spots almost over time. You know, the places. Yeah, I, I guess be preceding though. Yeah. Um, preceding Cape St. Francis, you know, in, in the in the mid-60s, you know, which was uh, Bruce's Beauties in South mm-hmm. Africa. I guess Hawaii would have been, yeah, like, the first ultimate destination. Totally, but, totally. But then, the, but then Hawaii has different parts of Hawaii, which were kind of, like, the ultimate destination. Well, Waikiki in the 20s, you know, <laughs> was, mm-hmm. was pretty ideal. And then I uh, went to, like you know, Makaha and then North Shore, you know, and and I think that's like kind of, and then it evolved from there. But yeah, it's interesting how the North Shore has kind of stayed, like it's it's almost been kind of timeless, like even though it's maybe not necessarily been top of the list forever, and, and actually probably like late 60s, early 70s or mid to mid 70s, I think the North Shore was like the destination Right. Well, I suppose once the mid seventies came around, then you know Bali, and then in the rest of Indonesia came on. But, um, but even still, like now, it's still like such a a prime destination to go to because it's got variety. Um, you know, it's uh, it's got big scary waves, you know, like pipeline. But then you have like something like sunset, or you have a Waimea, and then but then you have like a Laniakea's and the V Land, you know, and you have a whole lot of other spots in between, which I think uh, you know Haleiwa as well. So you've got which is a performance kind of wave. I mean, it's it's got the variety to kind of keep people interested in. And over the years, like different spots have like been focal points, right? Like, you know, Sunset was like the main spot almost with Waimea every once in a while and then eventually Pipeline. But then like it was off the wall for a little bit and backdoor eventually, uh, you know, and then certain years you've had like rock piles and log cabins have be featured, you know, a little bit more. And then, um, God, I mean, like, there's been numerous lots of spots. I mean, freaking Kiki uh, Shorebreak even had, had some <laughs> That's that, right. You know, had spotlights. So I think, like, that that variety of, of waves is, has always allowed it to keep being that focal point, you know? And it's always a challenge, all those waves, too. You're right. Um, it's got a real diverse portfolio, so, like, it can kind yeah. of... Or, like, an... Um, like a genetic uh, makeup, you know, if you have diverse genes, you, you're more um, resilient to, <laughs> to exactly. different diseases whereas, and so on. Whereas certain other places have, have fallen out of vogue, you know, and, and, or, or and, and, I mean, people still probably travel to those places, but it's not, not like the focal point that they once were, some of them. 
I mean, you know, obviously Bruce's beauties has changed over the years and it's, uh, you know, unfortunate due to like sand and, and all that sort of stuff, but also just that type of wave, you know, fell out of vogue with the different boards that we started to ride. And God, I mean, like some slabs, you know, have been like focal points and people have been searching for slabs to surf. I mean, you got some of those waves in Ireland or if you've been following Nathan Florence recently in, in Scotland trying to surf like some impossible scary slabs. And that's like a totally new focus. Yeah. So, well, it's interesting how you're, you're kind of interesting, like talking about like there's the surf travel for like what, we the surfers want to do and then there's the surf travel that we the surfers enjoy watching, watching. and living vicariously <laughs> through <Yeah>. exactly <laughs> yeah because i guess like thing. if you 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 mentioned waikiki before and then you mentioned you know uh, <coughs> you know cape saint francis mm -hmm. and and some other places like those were all places, and I said, you know, Malmo and Ridcott at the beginning, you know, those are all places that we all wanted to be surf and all could surf. Yeah. But then the slabs and, you know, what, what other guys are doing now and even cakey shore break, like that's stuff that, you know, <laughs> nobody wants to do, but you want to watch it. <laughs> and and I was saying, oh, is that just like the current times? But actually, you know, big Hawaii, you know, Makaha, Waimea pipeline, that's stuff that most of us don't want to actually surf, you know, no. or we won't actually surf, even if we might say we want to surf it. Now you, you, you ask a question, uh, you sent to me was, um, you know, uh, why has surf travel been such a big part of surfing and such a big mm. part, uh, of what it means to be a surfer. Um, so it's, it's interesting, right? Like I, I, um, have here a, uh, vintage surfer magazine here with like biggest ever neos in it i don't know if you can see oh i don't have the camera on is that the one oh. with uh michael barry on the cover or is that uh, uh yeah yeah i think so and it's uh. like but <laughs> kevin on and craig peterson did a real interesting like you know um kind of little piece on like the history of surf travel basically and if you think about it even like the polynesians right like they kind of traveled in some ways. I don't know. You wouldn't say necessarily for surf, but they did pioneer lots of new spots and places to surf. And it's, you know, and they left to explore, you know, the Pacific basically, you know, all the way up to Hawaii. And, and then like, if you want to, you know, go by Thor Heyerdahl's, you know, philosophy, even, you know, the Peruvians even like might've explored, you know, the Pacific. It's almost like in surfing's DNA, maybe that there's some sort of adventure in there. And then if you look at like, you know, um, you know, Jack London, who was one of the writers, you know, who helped make surfing famous from the beginning uh, of the, you know, modern day of surfing, uh, it was laced in adventure and kind of this romanticism of travel. And that's I think there you put the blueprint, right? Right. It's, you know, before when we were saying like, well, you know, to get waves that you can't get at home or to get waves because you can't get waves at home. Yeah. Um, it's, that's one of the reasons, but it's about all the, the more, the, the part that kind of touches the soul, if you will, you know, or the emotions, it's, and the identity as well. Like just, 
the desire to explore and to have adventures and, and see what's around the next point. Like, you know that book, The uh, Mutant Message Down Under? Yeah, I remember yeah, that, that book, yeah. Yeah, that, well, the woman who wrote it, you know, she, right, well, she spent, she ended up spending time with, uh, with um, a group of Aborigines, Arab, Aboriginal people in Australia, and and learning about their life. And she came and spoke at my university. And when she came and spoke, she said that, you know, what they told her anyway, was that the reason you kind of have humans all over the world is that, you know, most most people might be content, you know, just staying with the family, doing your local thing. But then every so often you'd get some people who just had the itch, you know, <laughs> to go mm-hmm. wonder what else was out there. And, you know, you could see the horizon, there's still land or there's still water, so why not keep going? And yeah, there's something just exciting about traveling to parts unknown or places that you've only heard of but haven't jo- ever been before. Joseph Campbell, Hero with a Thousand Faces. It's a, a constant story that is told through many different cultures. It's the same story of the hero's journey. Uh, you know, a, a, you know, we can use a farm boy like Luke Skywalker in Star Wars, you know, but wanting to see what else is out there, want to go beyond, you know, and have adventure. And, you know, this is, this is a common theme in human history. And it's, it's definitely uh, something that we all kind of, you know, look towards, like it's in all of our storytelling. And so I think there, there's something there that, that drives many of us to, to want to go explore, but eventually you come back and discover, you know, like, your home is also very nice too. I think. You know? <laughs> well, that 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 yeah. ties into a couple of things I've heard. Like one, yeah. one I know when I when I was backpacking in the nineties, you know, I met someone who said, you know, and they, we, oh god, you know, like we were all so full of it, you know, all yeah. us backpackers, you know, like of uh, you know, like who was a a more authentic traveler than the yeah. next. <laughs> and I remember, you know, one person said, well. You know, there's tourists and there's travelers. Which are yeah. you? And I think Jim Banks once said, you know, like the difference between a tourist and a traveler is that, you know, a traveler, you know, gets, you know, actually, it's actually Kevin Norton, Craig Peterson, who wrote this. Who wrote what? The difference between a traveler and a tourist, and that is, the tourist visits a destination, and remains unchanged, and the traveler returns mm. as a different person. Oh and, no! Did I take your stump? No, not at all. And and just to throw <laughs> just to throw even more pretension on top of that, the real voyage of discovery consists not in seeking new landscapes, but in having new eyes. Marcel Prost. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> but that is that is the whole thing, right? Like it's it it is going to a place and wanting to be changed. That that hero journey changes you. And and the one like one more thing I want to throw in before yeah. we move on to anything else is like when after I'd already been traveling you know for a bit you know for a few years um, you know I went to Argentina and we were just looking around you know we're like oh should we go to Mendoza or should we go to Bariloche and you know a couple of different places and it, all of a sudden I started to feel really bored by it and I thought well maybe I'm just getting old. Maybe I don't really enjoy travel so much anymore. But then we had the idea, you know, and I've said this to you before, 
let's try and make it down to to the bottom. Let's try and go to Ushuaia and Tierra del Fuego, and it, and let's Fuego. just let's just take buses and stuff. And all of a sudden, it wasn't just visiting different places and staying there for a bit. It 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 took on almost like the feeling of pilgrimage. And then it started to like come alive. It was almost like watering a dry plant. It started to like perk up a bit. And you started to, you know, then everything just became heightened because you knew you had a destination, but on route, then you could relax and just get excited and wonder what was going to come on that destination. And then everything came alive. Well, and um, also, it, it also like back to the, the journey big, sorry, would be to, the destination too. That would be the whole thing, you know. It well, would be, right? Like you. Would well, this have a destination, is, but you'd be open to everything in between. Right, and I I read something recently where they said like without a destination, it's not a journey. You're just wandering. Yeah, and that's what we do is just wandering before that. Whereas this, all of a sudden, it started to take root, and um, it's. It's like I know you know you, you read that excellent article that Kevin Lovett wrote about dis- mm. discovering uh, you know uh, Lagundi Bay and Nias, um, and it, 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 he goes into that so much you know just they had that they finally had a destination everything came alive and back you know at the very beginning you say why do we travel like when you and I were traveling through South America a lot of time it was like oh this will be interesting this will be interesting but then when we went to the surf places. It's interesting. We would go to some very cool places. You know, we went to Machu Picchu. We went on the the death road, you know, and all that stuff and the salt flats, which, but when we went to really ordinary towns in Peru, that was the most interesting travel. And we would have never gone there if it weren't for surfing, because you would have been like, well, why just go to some ordinary town where, you know, there's nothing particularly special, but surfing gave us a reason to go there. But once we were there, actually, like most of the stories that like I think about when we were like in Pacasmayo, mm. I, I hardly remember that really good day. You know, we were, you know, when the waves got big. Like I remember one turn that you did off the top. I don't remember riding any waves, but what I do remember is meeting those guys <laughs> with the hatchback. <laughs> I remember, you know, like um, trying to buy uh you know ingredients for um ceviche i remember sitting you know in um upstairs you know when the candlelight and you know it's all that stuff you know i remember when i had explosive diarrhea too uh, yes (laughs) Mm. best exactly all that stuff (laughs) exactly so the surf travel gives you a reason to go to all these places and then you're not just wandering around and wondering like when well, something interesting is going to happen. You're just surfing's the gateway drug to travel. You know, mm. I always felt like it. It was um, to go somewhere to surf was great, but then it, surfing almost became secondary to everything else. You know, it was like all the people you met, all the you know, the surfing allows surfing and traveling allows you a doorway that not a lot of other travelers may get because it gives you something in common maybe with some local people or it gives you a conversation piece at least or it does something that allows you to get that one foot in the door with more local scene and get to know the locals and to really uh, learn about the culture, learn about the people, learn about the food and, and really create lasting friendships too. 
I mean, those are those are some of the the wonderful things that that can come from surf travel. Um, you know, know on it, that, yeah, on that. Oh, do, do you want to keep going? And uh, well, I was just gonna say, like, the reason though, a lot of it has also been tied up with surfing is like, God, like, I mean, endless summer was definitely uh, really important to the surfer's image of travel. I think that one really set people off and set the template and opened a lot of people's eyes. I mean, for me, even I remember like, just like, you know, surfing out in Montauk when we were kids and being like, I'm going to go walk into the coves by myself, you know, and just see if there's other waves, you know, around the corner, you know, and I had the, you know, the endless summer theme song in my head the whole time. It like, that there was like the the template to opening it up and then it really you know it became part of almost like the industry too where you had search ads advertising movies everything kind of involved involved around the surf travel especially like in the early 70s part of like surf magazines what were they going to write about no contests really it was surf travel <laughs> Oh, it's true. And actually in the the stab uh how pro surfers make their money um series that I was talking to you about before, at least Paul Nordy yeah. says, you know, like, you know, what do you what surfer image are you selling to the public? Like and he said, I'm sorry, it's not the competition. Like that's not why people think surfing's cool. It's the romance of it, you know, and yeah. that comes with the travel. Exactly. Exactly. <coughs> uh what yeah. where were you gonna jump to next here oh it's a tricky one there's a couple of little offshoots <laughs> yeah. i mean one offshoot that one little offshoot though and it's like i think everybody um uh, always kind of older people probably always you know wonder about the younger generation and mm-hmm. they wonder if the younger generation is missing out on something that they had you know like I, whenever I talk to people now, and it doesn't always have to be surfers, just anyone who's did, done some long-term travel in the 90s, let's say, mm-hmm. you know, we all wonder, like, what's it like now that you have, you know, phones and the internet? Like, because I was I was, you know, saying to, you know, my kids today, you know, Bonnie and Rolf, I was saying, you know, like, when, when Tyler and I went across country and down into Mexico, we didn't bring phones with us. There were no mobile phones, or if yeah. there were, we didn't have them. And, um, like now, even if I'm going to go to the park, I think, oh, I should bring my phone just in case something happens and I need to call something. (laughs) Whereas, you know, we went into Mexico with just a map and some, you know, written down names of places to stay and it was fine. And, uh, and also like you could just, it was kind of a cozier feel, you know, you didn't feel as surveilled as you might now is you you felt like you could get lost in another world because you were not in contact with back home and i know we've talked about this before the funny thing is that at the time i remember you lamented to me you said oh it sucks that we have to call home once a week you know i feel like we're being watched you know i can't it's like trying to take a dump with somebody waiting outside the door. You know? I don't think I use that uh, analogy, but the, yeah, go for it. But, but essentially, <laughs> I think maybe I'm just, I'm conflating that picture I have of you underneath the cactus tree, maybe. 
Um, but that's uh, <laughs> like, um, but then again, that's the thing. Maybe, maybe travelers today, backpackers today, maybe they don't, they don't notice their surveillance because they didn't experience it any way different. And maybe for us, uh, if we met somebody who traveled in the seventies, they would have been like, Oh man, you know, you guys are missing out because you've got, you know, the surf report and you've seen pictures of the places mm. already in the surf magazine. You can take a plane places. Whereas, you know, we had to do this, this, and this, you know? Well, that's, that's a whole thing where it, it brings up a bit of nostalgia and brings up like a whole other, you know, conversation about the form of travel. And, you know, on one hand, like, I I loved traveling without all that without the phone because once you left like there was like a knot in your stomach I felt like when you would get on the plane it was like okay I got to figure out how to get from here to here I can't just like uber I just can't you know like I can't I have to have cash in hand I can't just like have a credit card you know, like, or anything. Remember we well, had traveler's checks. Traveler's we had checks. traveler's checks. <laughs> yeah, we had traveler's checks, you know, because ATMs were not everywhere even. And and part of that was, was really exciting. And I wonder if, like, now travel is is less exciting, you know, and it's more more for show as opposed to just like, you know, just going and exploring and enjoying it yourself and having that adventure because everything is so connected now and it's so easy to call home. It's so easy to access the information. Uh, and most people are traveling now. It seems there's a lot of people who just likes to like to post about their travel uh, too, you know, and rather than just kind of being, within it you know and and like remember so for our listeners we were in south america we were traveling we started in chile and we were working our way up north and i had brought this new 500 millimeter lens and i had a nice canon camera and we started in you know uh you know down south and uh you know, Punta de Lobos area and then uh, Pichilemu. And we, you know, I was taking pictures and we had some incredible photos. And then we went to northern, uh, you know, northern uh, Chile and got some great photos there. And I was, I was abandoning surf sessions almost. And I was living almost through the lens of the camera as opposed to enjoying things. And then we were in Bolivia and we're about to go in the jungle. And my bag gets stolen with like 30 rolls of film that I'd taken. And video of all of me. Yeah. <laughs> all of you. <laughs> so, you know, but it, it was an eye-opener. because It's like, well, I was living behind this lens. I wasn't really embracing it as much. And I wasn't, I would forego surfing to take pictures. And I was trying to capture things for what I thought would look really cool. And... And there was also the aspect of the fact that here I am, like traveling in someone else's backyard, taking pictures of them, being almost like a voyeur and not really engaging with them in some ways and using them almost as a prop in, in my story, you know? And, and, and it's kind of arrogant of me to be totally upset about losing all that footage 
when really, you know, it's in the grand scheme of things, I'm traveling and I'm getting to enjoy these places. Um, those are such small, minor things to really worry about. And I, I feel like a lot of people today are just living through their cameras and phones on these trips, maybe. Yeah, I, I wonder. I don't know. Like, I don't, uh, yeah. I, I, I know people who have children who are, you know, backpacking or living in, in different parts of the world, but I haven't actually spoke to those kids myself. You know, I don't know what their experience yeah. is like these days. It'd be interesting, like, if uh, if you do get to interview people, it'd be interesting to not just interview older, experienced travelers, but maybe some uh, some random surf-traveling kids, you know, yeah. today and see what the, what their perspective is on all this. You know, the, the other thing to, to mention is, is there's like definitely a Western colonial attitude towards travel, right? Mm -hmm. Like surf travel. There's, there's been this whole like we discovered this spot or discovered here and it's like, <laughs> you know, and there's like local people living there and there are people who've been in these areas that may not have been surfing, but they were living there. It's kind of funny how we've really had this kind of colonial attitude towards surf travel in, in our history. And I think that's something kind of to recognize and understand uh, how that's played out over time and the impact of surf travel. Yeah, it's, it's interesting because like when I was younger, I didn't see any problem in that, you know, like um, it, like I, I, when I was young, I would see films or articles of, you know, surfers from home going to different parts of the world and kind of like it was a very much like Indiana Jonesy kind mm -hmm. of feeling. And then like, whoa, you know, we met these, you know, natives. <laughs> and, you know, and it was like, I remember when I went to South Africa, I was taking pictures of kids just at random. And, and this is 97 and like really not, I wasn't taking pictures of them because I knew them or, uh, and I wanted to remember them. It was more like, Oh, cool. Look at this, you know, little local kid, you know, this will look perfect in my scrapbook because it'll, it'll make it seem like I went somewhere exotic. <laughs> it was like, and that was, that was not like out of the ordinary at the time, at the time, like if you watched any surf movie, which went traveling, they would do that. And actually not just in 97, but 2007 and, and yeah. maybe 2017, you still had, you know, like, Ooh, look at these interesting, colorful locals. <laughs> yeah. Well, you look at like, you know, some movies like, you know, castles in the sky or, uh, mm -hmm. you know, sipping jet streams even, which are beautiful movies, but they had this whole kind of like voyeuristic, you know, kind of approach of filming random kids and it's so exotic. Look at us. We're in Egypt surfing or wherever, you know, and it's like, it is definitely this weird kind of colonial kind of uh, attitude that we, that's Western surfers have had uh, through the, through the years. Um, now, Tyler, sure. I do have a question. Yeah. Do you think that actually probably they were probably thinking, Hey, this is actually we're we're taking films of real locals. We're not black facing oh, up for uh, like um, they did in uh, in in the summer. Oh yeah, we're, we're... 
gonna have to cut that bit out. <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. But why? I mean, that's I'm something that's been talked no, about know. In, you know, in the surf no. magazines. You know, it's they true. painted up um, one of their friends, you know, and uh, to pretend that they were a local. Um, yeah, it. I think. Um, I think everyone, th- you know, thinks at the time, you know, that that you're traveling, you think what you're doing is is fine, and and you know, and it's you know, over time, we we start to realize, like, oh shit, maybe this was like kind of a little weird or a little cringy at times, and mm. uh, it's not really highlighting the local culture as so much as it's just showing it, you know, in a in a more in a somewhat exploitive way, maybe, you know, and, and surfing and traveling has definitely have, it has a very checkered past. I mean, many surfers, bad, bad, you know, influences on lots of uh, local areas, you know, or who have, or surfers who have gone into these surf spots and then bought plots of land and, you know, brought tourism into the area in some ways like that's been great for some areas, but also it's been really destructive for other, like that, that Nias article you talked about with Kevin Lovett, like it, it, it really covers this incredible arc about how surf travel has had really ruined the place in some ways because Mm. the surfers go there and then they want drugs. And so the locals, See, it's a way to get money to get, you know, so they get them drugs to sell them. And then, you know, the surfers, maybe some of them want some sex. So they want to pay women for sex, you know, and it has negative repercussions on places, Um, you know, and and we have like a very checkered history of that, uh, you know, all over the place. Well, that's the thing, I guess, if you're thinking like what motivated you to go there in the first place, it wasn't a, an idealistic thing at all. It was very, you know, escapism. Yeah. And so you're not really thinking of any sort of the consequences. I mean, that's the thing indeed, like uh, uh, Kevin Lovett and um, oh, crap, who was his friend who he went with? Because uh, he went, um, wait, I know he went with um, John Giselle. Uh, yeah, or or Giesel or something, Giesel. right? And, uh, and, and Peter, Peter Troy. Troy and Peter yeah. Troy's uh, girlfriend at the time was oh they don't mention her name I don't think, but no. um and and he died uh, John Giesel he died traveling oh, overland yeah. of uh, right malaria and um, in Iran actually yeah um I, and according to that article they actually did kind of you know get to know the locals as like the local people as as friends you know and mm-hmm. kind of weren't. Well, they protected them, some of them, because they wanted to be, some of the people wanted to sacrifice them. Right, right, right. That's, (laughs) that article is so good. That's, uh, that's when Surfer's Journal didn't put a, um, a word limit on their articles. (laughs) It would take you days to read one. And the print, you know, like, I I do wonder, like, yeah, I wonder if Surfer's Journal's print has gotten, I used to like say, ah, why is their print getting all bigger? It's making the article shorter, but actually... Now I think I understand because as I get older, I can't read the old articles <laughs> so much. They're too small. Uh, but yeah, I mean, that's the thing. Once people find out about something, things things change really quickly. you know. And it's the same thing like with different neighborhoods getting gentrified really mm-hmm. quickly. Once you decide, discover something is uh, affordable and, and really cool, it just uh, gets, changes really quick after that. You know, but then there are also some really 
cool stories. Like, uh, you know, uh, there's this nonprofit called Waves for Development, and they go into Lobitos in Peru, and they're actually trying to, you know, teach the locals how to own the the tourism in their area and how to control it as opposed to someone from the outside coming in and buying up property and then just hiring a bunch of locals, you know, and, and not really allowing them the ownership of the place. Because mm. that's also a real big issue is how a lot of surfers have, you know, bought up land for real cheap in some some country, you know, where it was a little less developed at the time. And then they sold surf tourism there and they hired some locals, but then it's not really the locals in control. It's the, the, the Westerner, the, you know, the, the foreigner who came in and bought that land who's in more control. So a group like Waves for Development has been like teaching um, lots of locals to own their own things and to create their own businesses and to help get them funding for all of those things, as opposed to someone else coming in and dictating how things are going to be run. Cause that, that's like a, a thing I, I sometimes I struggle with and, and, and think about like, you know, so many people who've like expats who move to the, you know, Costa Rica, Nicaragua, buy land, you know, and then it's like, you know, and they're selling tourism, they're making good money, some of them. And, but some of them I feel like are taking advantage of, of locals too, you know, and taking advantage of local resources. And, and that's a thing. It's, it's complicated. It's, a, it's, a, it's complicated and it's a spectrum, isn't it? Because yeah. you could have the extreme negative end of the spectrum where you you buy up land, turn it into a hotel or something, and you just hire foreigners to work there. Yeah. And you completely exclude uh, people who live there. Uh, but then you could go like what you just described where you could have someone from a foreign country coming into a place that's poorer than where they live and they buy the land and open up a hotel or a, any sort of tourist place and they hire locals. They say, well, look, that's better than what, what, what Jamie just mentioned. <laughs> yeah. And then you go the next step where you can say, well, they kind of, someone can move in and assimilate with the local area. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it's, and it's so tempting. I know like if, you know, you said to me, here's a, a million pounds, you know, like uh, I might be saying, oh, wow, gosh, it wouldn't it be great to have a, a plot of land in um, in a place that's a lot less expensive and I can have my dream little hideaway. Uh, yeah. But it's uh, it has all sorts of repercussions as a result of that. I, I was reading in preparation for this uh, Surfer Magazine's Boat Wars article. Uh, this is from 1998, September issue. And basically it was about how there was like a huge battle over control of licenses of boats that could operate around the Mentois and how this one guy, Rick Cameron, was setting up a land base in the Mentois and how that was really controversial. And, you know, it, it, it also started to bring up the, you know, kind of the issue of like the rich and poor travel too, right? Like, mm-hmm. There's a whole, there's that whole aspect of it too, right? Like how, you know, some people will travel on, on the really cheap and bring their own food and do all those things. And then there's going to be these kind of elite places where you can only the rich people can afford to go surf. That's, that's such, it's open for so much debate on all areas, like what's right and what's wrong, because you're in what you just pointed out. 
you're not even thinking of the local people. You're thinking of, is this, if we have an exclusive surf resort, is that fair to the hardcore dirtbag surf traveler? Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so yeah. you're not even thinking of the local people, you're thinking of them. But then someone can make the argument that like, oh, okay, well, the, the surf traveler from Australia or, or the States or from uh, Europe, uh, how did they manage to get so much time without having to work? You know, they maybe like grew up, you know, in some sort of privilege that they could just, you know, they didn't have debt to pay or anything like that. They could just go off for months on end and not worry about getting back into the job market when they get home. Or, whereas somebody who's working their ass off every day, they've only got a few weeks holiday. They're going to be like, look, I just want to go away and decompress for a week. Yeah. You know, like <laughs> there, there's who, a who, whole... who's in the right there. I mean, there's a whole thing, you know, about the exclusivity of surf spots is like a whole discussion, right? And you look at like Tavarua, which was exclusive up until about 2010, 2011. And, you know, and a lot of people saw that as very beneficial, actually, uh, you know, because it was protecting a place uh, and they did give back to the community and, and were helpful. But since it's opened up, it, it, everyone was worried it was going to get ruined and it ended up be taking care of itself. And, and it's been actually pretty, pretty run pretty well, uh, you know, since since 2010, Tavaroa doesn't get that crowded. Um, but a lot more local people in the Fiji area have been able to do surf charters and boats and be able to take people out to surf. And people who are staying more in Nandi can go surf feet go surf cloud break as opposed to just having to stay in Tavaru or Namotu. And that's opened up the economy for a lot of other people. Um, and then you look at places like, you know, Sumba, you know, where it's like mm-hmm. super exclusive and crazy expensive. And is that really good for the local area or not? Who knows? You know, are they protecting well, well, that one? Yeah. Have you read that article in surfers journal on how that one was started? I I have not to be honest. Let's enlighten because that's a really long article. Um, yeah, it's oh, Claudia and Petra something. I forgot their surname, but they're the ones who started it. And in the article, they made a whole book and they have a, a Simba Foundation. Yeah, and they were all about at least from their point of view and whoever wrote the article. I think it was Kevin Lovett who wrote the article yeah. actually. And Jim Banks writes a long part of it as well. They were talking about how much they are working with the community right. and supporting the community, um, and they have this. They've started, like I said, the Sumba Foundation. But that's one of those articles that, like, yeah. uh, that's like a long term. Tra- that's like you take that article when you travel for six months, and you might finish it by the time you get back. <laughs> I'll send it to you later. I've. Uh, yeah. <laughs> um, what with with. It's you know it's interesting that you know you can looking back on surf travel you don't have to go very far back because our history is still relatively short at least in the yeah. modern era you know we we've been able to break it down to like pre nineteen fifty then the fifties the sixties seventies up till now but the world is changing so rapidly at the moment and there's so many geopolitical stuff going on um, like where do you I mean that's one of the questions I sent you know how do you envision surf travel looking in five years' time, 10 years, 20. I mean, think about it. You and I were traveling over 20 yeah. years ago. It was 25 years ago. That was the middle of our peak travel time. Yeah. 25 years from now, I feel like 
that's like Star Wars time. Like, I feel like yeah. the world's going to be so different in 20. I feel like in 25 days, the world's going to be very different. So do you have any image of what the future is going to look like for yeah. surf travel? So five to 10 years, in the next five, to 10 years, I see more packaged surf trips, more places where you can get surf, good quality surfboard rentals so you don't have to travel with the surfboard. Um, I think wave pools will be a destination for surf travel as well. I think there'll be much more of that. Like, And with those, there's going to be more surf improvement resorts and trips. So you'll go on a surf trip and maybe it'll be with a pro surfer as well or a coach. And you will go and work on your surfing and improve your surfing. So it'll be very much surf-centric travel as opposed to really getting to know the area and you'll have like your your trips around but it'll be more controlled more packaged you'll see more of that i think you're gonna see also more like group kind of trips uh you know more and more of that that's gonna be the next five to ten years uh, i believe then as we go beyond 2030 i think the world destabilizes quite a bit i think a lot of places a lot, lot more places will become more dangerous to surf due to global instability like huntington uh, beach yeah or or just yeah well during the op <laughs> during the u.s open maybe with all the riots um or the during the during the um <laughs> during the pandemic with all the protests yeah yeah <laughs> but i also think like you'll see um, you know, it's going to be like more places with, with more desperation, famine and stuff. So it'll be either you're going to surf and travel to some place, but it'll be really closed off from the people and it'll just be like one surf spot or it'll just be kind of dangerous to go to a lot of places. I think there's going to be a lot of instability, maybe. Yeah. I don't know. Or it'll be more gated off potentially and maybe more wave pools. You know, that's what it's going to be, baby. And unfortunately, I think surf travel won't. I mean, there'll always be some people who will be doing the hardcore travel. And 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 I think that'll always be there to a certain extent. But I think it's really going to be much more insulated travel. That's that's how I see it in the future, you know, at least mm. in, the, in like past 2030. And then anything beyond that, I'm like... Who knows? Hover cars to surf breaks and like. <laughs> hey, you make good points. I mean, I, I think I, I, I kind of agree possibly with a lot of that stuff. It's interesting to think if like pre, pre-recession in 2008, yeah, pre-9-11, maybe you kind of could have imagined all these futuristic trajectories, you know, like you know, how surfing was starting to go, it, it, the world was becoming more crowded and there were more surfers. So what's the trend was to go to colder destinations because yeah. the technology was getting better yeah. for staying warm, uh, you know, heated wetsuits and so on. And and that was what was happening. So you started, I started to think if, if it that. had gone to that, yeah, but on that trajectory, I would have thought that that's the direction it would have gone. And just, and with, uh, and with, higher tech surf forecasting you could go to a wider variety of places because mm. you would know 
when the surf would be good. And if you're working from remotely, yeah. then you could you don't have to take vacation time to do that. You know, so if, let's say we were in an era where there wasn't all these problems, but all the good stuff about technology, you could say, all right, <laughs> hey, let's just keep our eye on the forecast. And if it says that um, Tunisia is going to have good waves, let's go there next week. You know, mm-hmm. we'll still work, but we'll go surfing a couple hours a day. And that's kind of like what was happening with surf media. You know, you're seeing trips yeah. to all these unusual places because they're, in their world, they were able to do all that. But I think um, I think in the long run, it's very fascinating to think that in 30 years' time, like, you know, looking at it from an extreme point of view, maybe, or maybe a realistic mm-hmm. point of view, maybe maybe air travel will be much more limited because it'll be yeah. too expensive and it'll be and it'll be too um environmentally costly uh so maybe there will be a lot more travel you know local travel travel on land mm-hmm. maybe there'll be more travel by sea you know maybe we'll be yeah. sailing a lot more um if if water levels change and is that going to change you know or is there going to be uh, a reduction in surf breaks so is there going to be new surf breaks um I, I i think cold water surfing is still going to be like i think that's going to be where all the the kevin Naughton, craig peterson type of surfers go to that direction you know the the, the only thing is is that kevin Naughton, craig peterson they were traveling in an era where gas was cheap yeah and um, you you could really travel on a shoestring back then, and the dollar was so much stronger. Um, whereas if you travel to a cold water destination, you got to have money. You got to be able to afford good suits, good gear. You have to be able to pay for a, a good accommodation as well. You know, like a nice place to stay. You can't just sleep in a tent on the beach. You can if it's a uh, Arcteryx whatever <laughs> i don't know who you know like north face tent or something but like when i you know when you watch surfers surfing those places they, they've got all the gear which would cost the, the amount of money they spent just getting there and on the gear would have funded a, a, a backpacking in the 70s for two years time <laughs> that is true that is true you make a good point i i yeah like i don't know i mean it definitely feels like uh, the the. It feels more limited to surf travel now, you know. Like you could still do do a good solid backpack trip, uh, you know, and and rough it. But it it does like those options are getting smaller as more and more places get discovered, and more and more tourism opens up to a lot of these places too. I I'm. I'm waiting to see like a young group of surfers do like a, a new version of Timmy Turner's like second thoughts type of trip where they just camp out, you know, uh, and like Penitin or whatever and, and surf razor sharp reef and kill a goat and whatnot. <laughs> well, it's interesting. Like that sounds like cutting edge, right? But yeah. when you were describing how, so many people are so obsessed with documenting their trips. Maybe what's really cutting edge, what I'd like to see is a group of young surfers who leave their phones and their cameras at home. 
Yeah. Like that would be <laughs> radical. <laughs> that would be that would be awesome. <laughs> um, well, I so I did have I remembered my question. Oh yeah, what's that? Well, is keeping a spot secret mm. a good thing or a bad thing? It's nice to to keep a spot secret, I think. I I mean, I'm I'm a I like it, you know, to a certain extent. But yeah, cuz I mean, once it gets out, it can get ruined by someone. Uh, you know, they they could come in and buy it or whatever. I don't know. What do you think? It's it just came to me now and I wish I'd prepared better cuz there there was an article recently where I forget who wrote it, but they said, you know, um, Derek Hind had said to them, this is like 30 years ago, you know, like, oh, you know, keep it secret. Or if, if we don't keep it secret, we've got, you know, this many years left. Or if we do keep it secret, we got this many years left. And then I think at some point in the article, they made the argument of the benefits to not keeping a spot secret. Um, and I know in the recent issue of Surfer's Journal, um, Alex Dick Reed wrote yeah. a big article on Palmetto Point. You know that that right hander in the Caribbean, which mm. for years you'd see it, where it was like a shore break that broke for like a hundred, couple hundred yep. yards. Yeah, and it was all like kind of that bluish, you know, turquoise color. Mm -hmm. And well, now it's, nice. it's well, he's completely blown the lid on where it is. Yeah. But the reason is because they're they're trying to build you know, all this, this luxury destination there and the locals don't want it. I'm breaking it down very simply. Yeah, yeah. And so the article was written to try and raise awareness of the place to, to help stop it. Um, it's in Barbuda. So that's the, that's the answer. <laughs> and that's, I wonder if nowadays, like, you know, like the secret spot, like it, you know, back to benefiting the local people, you know, like if you keep a spot secret, um, it could benefit the locals if you want to preserve like the way that that they're living, but then maybe it doesn't give them a chance to benefit. And the only people of tourism, whereas the only people who are benefiting are the locals who keep, uh, the, the surfers who keep going back. I guess you can't stop a rising tide, right? And mm. the the only way to do it is to help maybe influence it in a positive way, at least, as opposed to letting someone come in and fuck it up, right? Like that's mm. maybe the mentality that that has to be taken. Um, you know, that that that's definitely something to consider, you know. But I guess like when I think of secret spots sometimes, like I'm thinking of a place where it's like so removed, like there's no one living around even, you know. <laughs> like, mm, mm. And closer to home maybe as yeah. well. Yeah, like you got like a place like Pavona's, right? Like that that wave was was basically there was no one really living there even it was like discovered by a guy who just saw it and like hatcheted his way and bought a lot of land there it's like kind of a really interesting story i think there were people that there, there were a lot of people living there at the time but he ended up danny fowley ended up building you yeah. know like a whole town and everything but there were people yeah. living there there were people but it wasn't like crazy i mean i don't know it's still pretty pretty um not not overrun with a lot of stuff still, apparently. Mm. But let me ask you this, then. Um, when do you think was the best era for surf travel? 
It's really tricky. Like the gut, like if you said you have two seconds to answer that question, I just blurt out 70s, yeah. you know, um, because the, the argument for that is that there was a reason to travel. Well, I, okay, I'm talking about for Western, for uh, developed yeah. wealthy nation surfers, you know, like the United States and Australia and Europe. Um, and, and the wealthy Brazilians, I suppose, as well, wealthy South Africans. Because before that, if you lived in California or Australia, like at least up until the, the early 60s, what was the point of surf travel apart from having yeah. these, you know, these adventures and stuff, but you didn't need to surf travel, right? Yeah. Um, but once this, the 60s surf boom came, you had to travel. But when you went to a lot of the um, less developed countries, there weren't any surfers. There are many surfers there. So you could go to all these. You knew what it felt like. That's the other thing. You knew what it felt like to surf in a crowd. But then you could go back and experience empty yeah. surf spots. Whereas before that, if you went to empty surf spots, you'd be like, big deal. In <laughs> fact, I want to go home time. where like, I want to go home where like I can speak the language and, I'm, and I know what's going on. Whereas here, yeah, they're empty surf spots and I, I'm a bit freaked out. <laughs> so in that way, the 70s is great. And then also before the 70s, traveling with airplane wings was really difficult. But in the 70s, if you had a six foot or seven foot surfboard, that was easy. Yeah. Um, after that, all the so many of the warm water surf spots were already discovered and so you had to go to colder spots, which is not as much fun. <laughs> so, yep, 70s, 70s. <laughs> For me, it would be the 80s because you, it was still, still a lot of places you can go that were off the beaten track, even warm water places. The boards were really good. You know, mm -hmm. you had a lot of thrusters. You had single fins. You had twins. You could do a wide variety of boards. You had ProLite surfboard yeah, bags. Yeah, ProLite board bags, exactly. And, and you had Run Walkmans. Man as well. And you had Walkmans. Ah, uh, so yes. <laughs> you could listen to music at least, you know. That that to me, I need my music, you know. And, uh, you know, and it was, you know, it was, there was still like, still a bit of adventure, but also it was a lot going on. I don't know. I think the 80s would be a pretty cool time for mm. sure to have traveled uh, for surf. Now, definitely. Uh, and then, but if you want, what's that? I was, <laughs> but like um, in the seventies, you could smuggle weed to uh, to uh, finance your trips. Whereas in the eighties, you had to go into more dangerous substances. <laughs> <laughs> Actually, it was probably a lot hard. Actually, though, like because of the um, was the hijackings in the, the yeah. uh, around nineteen eighty, that yeah. made things a lot sketchier and tighter you know and the survey uh, security was heightened yeah. whereas before that you could be pretty loose maybe <laughs> you just glass in that cocaine and uh and weed in your board you know and <laughs> mm -hmm. <laughs> um now if you could travel have the next year off to surf travel what would you do I'd spend it in Montauk. I, it's really weird. Like, it's, it's, my feelings are so different now about travel. Um, like, when I was 18, 19, 20, like, to me, just 
I just wanted to see the world. You know, I wanted to mm. see all these places that I'd heard of. Um, and I wanted to see places I hadn't heard of yet. Whereas now, you know, there's been so many places I've been to that I loved, like, I, it, but it's been so long since I've really spent time at a lot of places. I want to go back to places now. It's, mm. it's really weird. It's like I, when, um, I think when I was 22 or 23 or 24, was met someone traveling and we were talking about like, was it good to travel now? when we were in our early 20s or should we be focusing on getting our career going and then when we're older and we have money we can relax and then we could travel i said yeah but right now i'm really excited to travel i don't know how i'm going to feel in the future yeah. and to tell you the truth right now i am not i don't have that buzz and excitement that i used to have but i would love to go back to I haven't been to Southern California in years and I really have like a nostalgia and a homesickness for it. I'd love to go back to Hawaii. I'd love to go back to Indonesia, New Zealand. I'd love to go back. I want to go back to all the places I don't. And that's in a weird way. It's not at all like how we're describing surf travel and exploration and pilgrimage. Maybe once I've gone back and seen all those places, then I could rejuvenate my desire to see something new. So that's my long answer. I I would like West Africa, like to go. I'd love to surf Robert's Port, Liberia, and like a couple places around there. Uh, Angola would be kind of sick with the laughs there. Mm -hmm. um, and I'd love to just go back to Peru and Chile. I just love surfing those two countries. They're amazing. Mm. The waves are great. The food is awesome. Mm. There's lots of things to see and do and people to to hang with and the culture and everyone's lovely there, you know, in both those countries. Like I really enjoyed uh, meeting a lot of people there. So that would be really fun. Do you, um, would you like to though go on a like a six month extended uh, spontaneous follow your gut, follow word of mouth surf trip yeah. if you could? Yeah, I still kind of wouldn't mind. I what what's like the most like adventurous surf trip you've ever done? Like one that you just like that was kind of like out of Kevin Norton and Craig Peterson journals. <laughs> it, it's weird, like, and I've, I feel like I've experienced this with a few other things in my life, but I think when I went with my friends down to Baja for one week when I was 20 years old, I think that was the most adventurous trip I took, even though, and at the time I remember thinking like, whoa, this is just my first dip in the water. Wait till, wait till I do a lot of other travel. It's going to get way more exciting. But actually there was four of us. We drove in a car. We went without any plans. We just drove from Colorado to San Diego and then down into Baja for a week. We didn't bring tents. What we brought was a tarp and some thermorests and sleeping bags. And we just would just drive all day long and then just pull over the side of the road and drive into the cactus fields and lay out the tarp, put it down. We'd look for wood and we'd burn it. And it was really like... It, it was it was really raw. It was really 
adventures. We didn't know anything. We just had this old book that was like 15 years old that told you information about Baja. We would just dig a hole to to shit in. We would um, we would go. I you know me and one other guy Scott. You know we knew some Spanish, so we would go and try to make friends with people. And and we we did end up like hanging out with. With, with people who lived there and we would spend the night getting really pissed with them and it was it, that was a real adventure you know like it everything afterwards i think i was just that little bit more prepared which made it less of a risky adventure but that was uh yeah and we left one of our friends down there that's the other thing is that <laughs> one of our friends on one of the nights out he met someone met this woman and he we went back to where we we're staying and then later that night like we we're like where's mark and then finally like around lunchtime he shows up and we're like what's going on and he's like i'm not coming back with you and like what do you mean i'll come back with you he's like i've i've met this woman uh anella or maria i think her name was and so we just left him and we didn't have really we didn't do much emailing yet and we didn't have any mobile phones or anything we didn't hear from him for six months and then six months later, he came back to Colorado and told us what happened. And that type of stuff, everything afterwards, there were little adventures that were, you know, some of them more dangerous and this and that. And, and that one, I brought my surfboard, but I only surfed once. And um, and when I surfed, so this I'm talking for a long time, looking at the time. <laughs> when I surfed, it was, we just pulled up to some cliff somewhere and there were waves and the guy said, all right, Jamie, go show us what you can do. And there was no one else out and there was no buildings around, no huts or anything. It's, that was actually the most like adventurous. Surf. Not necessarily the most enjoyable. Like I loved our time in South America and everything else. But as far as just nonstop adventure. <laughs> yeah. I like nah. it. Did I ever tell you about the time that someone drew a map on a napkin and I followed it? Ha! <laughs> that was mine where i was alone i was in bali for a few months and uh this friend of mine was like this is a wave it's gonna take you a few days to get there i'm drawing it on a map you need to get to this city and then you need to get down to here and that's where it is and i only knew like the name i didn't even know really the name of the spot i just knew the name of the town and that was it and uh, yeah, I just went, bought a plane ticket and uh, flew to this place, spent the night in this city. I was like the only, only Western guy I saw and uh, no one spoke English. And then I found my way onto another like 12 hour bus ride and then ended up getting down to this town. And these guys are like, they saw the surfboard and they're like, come with us. And they're just like, waving to me to get in this truck and it's like nighttime and i'm like where am i where am i going i had no clue and then like we pull up to like this camp and lo and behold comes out as like two aussie guys a father and the son they're like oh yeah how you going mate we've got some brisket and uh, coconut mashed potato if you want come and eat <laughs> it was like insane it was like what <laughs> And it was some of the most incredible waves of my life. Um, now, now that trip, though, to be yeah. fair, that's the one you made a whole movie about, right? Yeah, I did. <laughs> and this is after after the story of you getting enlightenment in South yeah. America, losing yeah. your stuff, yeah. and yeah. talking about kids today filming everything. Yeah. You- <laughs> 
Fuck you. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, whatever. But that's it. I think perfect. kids today, yeah. kids today could maybe have more Same of an way. adventure than us because we were used to not having internet access. But if think about it, if a kid today leaves their phone at home and travels, that is way gutsier than what we did because we, we were used to it, you know? True. That is true. <laughs> and also, if they try to show up somewhere, they'll really struggle because everyone else will have booked a place in advance. Whereas, you know, we're... <laughs> I think today you have yeah more of an opportunity for a high adventure, maybe. <laughs> Probably. So, um, you know what time it is. It's time for Stump Stump My my Bro. bro. When you're hiring for a small business, you want to find quality professionals that are right for the role, and there's no faster or effective way than through LinkedIn Jobs. Your time and capital are precious, and there is a powerful resource that can help you focus on what you're good at and integrate people into your team seamlessly to help grow your business. LinkedIn Jobs has created the tools to find the right professionals for your team efficiently and for free. LinkedIn isn't just another job board. Everyone is already on LinkedIn with their resumes and references, and now LinkedIn has designed a hiring platform to connect you with candidates specifically qualified for the job that you post about. More than a billion professionals meticulously organized to connect people by skill set to help us all advance our position. 2.5 million businesses already use LinkedIn for hiring, and 86% of small businesses get a qualified candidate within 24 hours. It's that fast, easy to use, and effective. LinkedIn Jobs can help you write job descriptions, filter the right person to you, and give you the tools to help you interview them like a pro. LinkedInjobs.com slash surf is where you go to post your job for free. Yes, totally free free. That's linkedinjobs.com slash surf to post your job for free. Terms and conditions apply. All right. Are you ready? Mm-hmm. You got some stuff? I've got a few, actually. Right. I got a couple, but you know, I've got some brain cloud coming from COVID, so uh, go easy. Uh, all right. Well, <laughs> I've, got, um, I've got four. I've got all four. Right. So I'll start with one here. Um, so which very famous surfer said, and this one I thought of while we were doing this because it kind of, you, you inspired me. Which famous surfer said, um, a local is just someone who can't get their shit together to go travel? Oh, I've heard that too. Ah, oh, shit. Um, local, not that young. No, no. Uh, can you give me a little bit more? Uh, you want a clue? Yeah, give sure. Me a clue. <laughs> okay. I'd like to take a lifeline. <laughs> I, I can imagine this surfer then saying, and hey, if you do go traveling and you make friends with someone and you give them a wave, they might have a cute sister. Oh, Al Chapman. <laughs> nice clue. <Yes. laughs> 
that's a good I one. like that one in that, you yeah. know, he was someone who lived on the North Shore where the waves were really good. And it goes back to what we were talking about before. And he lived in the North Shore when it wasn't very crowded. And he lived on the North Shore when he could get any wave he wanted. Yeah. Yet he was a prolific traveler, actually. He loved yeah. the adventure, you know. Um, all right. Well, this one here, this... This is basically when Kevin and Craig Peterson are parched and grubby while camped on a desert point in Morocco. And they met this bearded Latin American wave hunter who tossed them a few tangerines when they said they were from California. And he said, that's okay. I won't hold it against you. Who is this surfer? Now, I think you asked me the same question when we did the Brazilian one. Um, it's Tito Rosenberg. Yeah. Damn, yeah. I might have. But I phrased it differently. It's <laughs> <laughs> like brain cloud, man. I'm sorry. That's all right. No. Yeah. Oh, I've got one. I've got a yeah. couple of his. Well, his one. Now, this one I'm asking because from everything I've read, there are two conflicting answers to this and i want to know what the truth is so the, the question is i don't know if i can the question is who first surfed g-land Ooh. well i think it would have i mean Is it Lafferty? But you would have thought it would have been the maybe the Boyums too, right? Well, from what I so for yeah. years, like the the story that was in um uh was it Leonard Lewis's Surfing Indonesia book? Yeah, or was it Jason Childs? I forget which. I can see it over there, but I won't get up. <laughs> and also in the Surfers Journal, also <laughs> on the EOS. And also yeah. on Surfline, they all said that Bob Laverty from yeah. California, he was flying over G-Land, like a lot of other surfers had, and noticed, you know, the waves peeling into... Well, the flight um, got detoured, actually. Right, into, yeah. into Gradigan Bay, uh, you know, on Java. And so then he came up with the idea, you know, he bought nautical maps, he bought, you know, motorcycles, camping gear... And he spoke to not Mike Boyum, but his older brother Bill. or younger brother, Bill Boyum, who was already living in Bali before, or had been there before Mike had been there. And he said, right, you know, you want to come with me? I, you know, I found this great you know, place. And Bill Boyum wrote an excellent article. It was really good of that journey. And the two of them, yeah. they loaded up their bikes. They rode up the uh, west coast of Bali took the boat over, rode through Java. And, you know, the whole time he's just sprinkling in great detail and context of the time. And then they ended up, you know, riding, you know, taking a boat to Gradigan Village. Then they rode along the beach until the sand got too deep. And then they walked up and then they camped out in the jungle. And then the next morning they hiked up even further and then surfed, you know, G-Land for a few days. And then when they came back to Bali, they went to Ulu and Seoul, you know, all the surf travelers there and said, guys, this isn't even a surf spot. And they're like, <laughs> fuck you. Now, so that's what I knew for years and what I just said all the other places. But in the recent issue of the Surfers Journal, um, Mike Ritter and Jack McCoy uh, 
wrote an article where it's like excerpts from their yeah, new, from book. new book. Yeah. And it said that the story, the untold story, uh, origin story of G-Lan. And in that, it says that, yes, Bob Laverty did see it, but then he went by himself and then got close to it, but didn't make it all the way and took some pictures that you could see in the distance, some lefts breaking. And then he came back and told um, a bunch of the guy, traveling surfers. And then Bob Jones... Raymond Texley and Abdul, who I'd read about before in other surf articles, they ended up getting a catamaran together and they sailed over. And Abdul, I think, was the first. Abdul wasn't, that wasn't his real name. That was like his yeah. alias. He surfed the first wave. And then Bob Laverty actually did show up and then they all surfed it together. And mm-hmm. they don't mention Bill Boyum at all. And I thought, whoa, what's what's the truth? And I started to look up information online and I didn't have any, couldn't read any arguments online, but that's something which would be interesting to find out. I guess the other question is to this is, do you know what year? Both of them do say it happened the same year. Is it like 79? Way earlier. 72, 1972. Oh, damn. Yeah, I think Mike Boyum already had the surf camp in 79 or by that point. That's why. All right. Um, okay. This surfer discovered perfect ideal lefts while visiting his father's sugar plantation in 1963. He wrote to Surfer Magazine, it is a left slide with the most wonderfully shaped waves you can imagine. But it wasn't until 1974 that the world was reminded of how good this spot was in this well-known but forgotten surf film. What is the place that was discovered? And bonus, if you know who the surfer was who first discovered the wave. Whoa. I mean, was it Tamarind Bay in Mauritius? Ooh, yes. Good good call. Yes. Well, just, just the clue, like a, a perfect wave in the early 1970s. And I thought... Like, I don't that, actually... And I, I was hoping the forgotten part, the little emphasis. Ah, I didn't hear that. <laughs> forgotten on um, the But... But I, I mean, I don't know who the surfer. I mean, okay. Well, I know that the the surfers who made the film was um was the two brothers. Ah, uh, uh, crap. Yeah, you know yeah. who made the film is the two brothers who made the film. Is that who discovered it? Or? No, Joel oh, no. De Rosnay is the surfer. Really? Yeah. Ooh. I do know about Joel DeRosnay, and he ended up, he was like a really shit-hot physicist. Yeah. Um, re, you know, like champion surfer. Have you read the article on his brother, Arno yeah. DeRosnay? Yeah, yeah, yeah. it's oh. really good. It was so yeah. cool. <laughs> so, yeah, that is a cool one. Very fascinating. Ah, I didn't yeah. realize that. Um, okay, here's another one, which... Yeah, maybe a similar time period. So it's a two-part question. Mm-hmm. Who was Mickey Dora's love interest and you know co-conspirator and traveling partner? And why did she leave him eventually? Why did she eventually finally split up with him? I don't know this. I'm sorry, I forgot. <laughs> but have you read the the Mickey Dora book by uh, Renson? What? 
Oh man, I've read it twice. It's such a page turner. Waiting for and someone it's a, to give it to me for Christmas. Ah, well, I'll give you my copy. And uh, <laughs> it's, it's also what's great about the book. Uh, I think it's Searching for Dora. Is that what it's called? I've got mm-hmm. it. Um, no, All for a Few for Perfect a Waves. Yeah, that's what it by is. By David Renson. And what it is, is it's it's a mixture of narration and talking heads. Mm-hmm. And so that it's such a, like, because of that, you never get bored throughout the whole book. And mm-hmm. he really tries to deconstruct Mickey Dora's persona and his psyche and his motivations. It's, I, I really enjoyed it. I have read mm-hmm. it twice now. Um, but anyway, the, the woman is Linda Kai. And I always thought it was Kui because it's spelled C-U-I. But then I decided to search her up. And um, she's actually, she wrote a book. And so she, and she's on the video. She says, hi, I'm Linda Kai. Uh, she was from California. She's a really good surfer. But anyway, they were together for a while. They traveled all over the world. She helped, you know, like forge, you know, cards and all that <laughs> stuff. And we'd, she'd get them out of jail and all these different things. And then, um, but they were living and surfing in France for a while in the seventies. And she eventually just got sick of Mickey, you know, just his personality and everything. And they had a lot of fights and living in, you know, an ice cold camper van Mm -hmm. for you for a while. But then also she was sick of all the beach breaks in France. And she said (laughs) it was just monotonous and a pain in the ass. And it's true. You know, like surfing in England, you got those leash. Uh, yeah, yeah, and and you know, I surf you know in England where the waves are good, really good beach break, but those beach breaks beat you up after a while. So she met another surfer from Ireland who said, uh, "Oh, yeah, if you go to Ireland, there are point breaks, reef breaks, and there are rights as well." So she was mm-hmm. like, "Right, I'm out of here." And she went up to Ireland and she had like a big, um, big uh, surf adventure up in Ireland. <laughs> That's awesome. All right. Um... This surfer was probably the first hardcore surfer to arrive and likely surf Bali and was traveling through Europe in 1969, one year after placing third in the world championships. He decided on a whim to fly from London to Bali and he stayed at Kuda and traveled a few miles across the Isthmus to Sanur, another blossoming tourist village where he would have certainly taken notice of the cliff-fronted Bukit Peninsula immediately south of Kuda and Sanur dangling off the end. Who is this surfer? I, I feel like you've asked me a question about this guy before. Is it Keith Paul? Nope. Or, or um, ah, uh, Russell Hughes? Yeah, you got it. It's. I always mix the two up because they had blonde hair and they were from Australia. Yeah. So, so I, I can well, never keep good. in my head who they are. <laughs> You are I am really good. You are the I am, master. I am really good at this. <laughs> yeah, you are good. You I, are I good. used to. I mean, I, I, I'd like to. Put, I, mean, I used to always wonder, like, how I stacked up in this in the surfing world as far as just random trivia goes. But I think I'm pretty good at this stuff. I might have to start putting out calls on on Instagram to see if people send us some good questions for Stump My Bro. I think that's it's, the next step. Test. I mean, it has to Stump be Jamie. It'll be Stump Jamie instead of Stump My Bro. <laughs> and, and that's the thing. I mean, it's 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 the kind of trivia that you get from reading the major surf magazines. Um, you know, it's there's a lot of stuff you know that has happened that I don't know about. Like, when I oh, I can't remember her name already. But when, like when you interviewed, you know, um, you know, Shark Woman. That's the only. Oh, you know, I didn't interview her. 
Kim, Kim McKenzie. Right. You know, like I didn't know about her before, you know, and there's, there's a lot of, uh, Sandra Adile, I, I didn't know about her. So there's a lot of stuff I don't know, but everything that was printed in the surf magazines from the mid eighties, uh, <laughs> definitely up to the, you know, the like 2005, that stuff I know really well. And then since then, you know, like whatever's been in Surfers Journal, because I've just like, <laughs> there weren't that many magazines to go around so you could reread them. And a lot of times I would just reread articles like 20 times, just just as like a relaxing kind of pastime. So I think that's why I know all this. <laughs> well, I've got one more question then, right. and I think you might get it. Uh, I, I know you hate when I say that before, and maybe I do yeah. it just to make you see, man. Uh, but what, what Australian surfer, um, I think stowed away on a ship to Hawaii and I think got busted. Oh, uh, McTavish. Yes. Yeah. 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 Oh, I got one at least. I had to give you a win. I got two actually Lafferty and, and McTavish. I'll take those. Uh, well, the Laverty one—it's not that was only part of it. It was either Laverty and Bill Boyum or Laverty and Bob Jones, Raymond Lee, and Abdul. Yeah, well, I'm going off of what's in most print right now, and the G Land book hasn't been uh, made available just yet, or I think it uh, just you, came. You, out. So give me... you, you get the Surfers Journal, by are you actually reading it? That's I've been having question. issues. Every Surfers Journal I've been getting, by the way, they've been wet lately. And the pages have been sticking together, and it's not from any other weird thing. It's just the no. It's yeah. that's the authenticity of it. It's straight from the ocean, with <laughs> <laughs> <Or> the rain. <laughs> well, oh no, um, that's bad. Well, listeners, that was our uh, take on surf travel. Let us know if we missed anything, or should bring it up in the next episode. And uh, we'll try to uh, be a bit more diligent on our episodes coming forward. And, uh, yeah, and we're all part of the Surf Splendor Network. So give it a listen. And um, anything else, Jane? Um, I feel like I've listened to some good stuff out there recently, like stuff to recommend. I, I definitely... Yep, as I said before, I've really enjoyed the Stab Pro Surfing, you know, How Pro Surfers Make Their Money series. Um, I know Ain't That Swell's had some good podcasts recently, and, and so has uh, Surf Splendor's had some really good interviews with different shapers um, yeah. and Parker Coffin. It's been some good stuff out there lately. So, uh, although I have to say, it's it, it's hard not to, there's, there's so much going on in the news as well. There's so much to, to, to put your headphones on to these days. <laughs> <laughs> Well, listeners, we'll see you on down the line. Thanks for listening. We'll see you soon. Get out of your chair, man. Let's go everywhere. She on San Juan, Tucson, Sri Lanka, Shambhata.